All right, I'm going to read all the way through this text and then preach it. We'll respond to God. Mark chapter 10, verse 46, it says, And they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, Call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, buddy, get up, he's calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed Jesus on the way. This is the word of the Lord. I want to kind of go through this text with you through three movements, and I'll just give you those movements right off the bat. What we see in the story is that Jesus meets you. We're going to see that Jesus calls you. Ultimately, we're going to see that Jesus heals you. But specifically, Jesus meets you. He meets you where you're at. I want, you to, I want to make sure that you hear that last part. We all know Jesus meets people, duh. We see in this text, he meets people right where they're at. I want you to notice, go back to verse 46. I'm going to read that text one more time. It says, they came to Jericho. And as he was leaving Jericho, with its walls and its city and its population and its grandeur, fresh off the heels of Jerusalem, the centerpiece of politics and religion, He left those places with his disciples and a great crowd. And Bartimaeus, blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. (laughs) This is where Jesus finds people. He was sitting by the roadside. Two things I want you to observe about Bart. He's unable to see anybody or anything. Jesus could walk straight up on him and he wouldn't know unless Jesus said something. He's also unable to access Jesus. Jesus is in the city. Bartimaeus is on the roadside where beggars are, okay? Jesus is unaccessible to him. He can't even see him. He's outside of the city. But Jesus comes to Bart. He leaves that spot. He comes to the roadside where people like Bartimaeus are. He goes to Bartimaeus. And he meets him. I just love that phrase. I was looking at this late last night. And that phrase, by the roadside, I just couldn't stop thinking about it. Because I feel like that could mean so many different things to so many of us. What's your roadside? Have you ever been left by the roadside? Do you have a proverbial roadside? Have you ever been kicked to the curb? Maybe you can relate to Bartimaeus a little more specifically. 
Bartimaeus was physically blind. Maybe, maybe you're not physically blind, or maybe you are. Maybe most of you, you're not physically blind, but you, you have a hard time seeing clearly right now. Things are spiritually foggy, you know? Maybe church is a hard, hard place for you to be. Maybe relationships have been a hard place for you to be, and maybe the climate that you are in right now in Santa Barbara is just a hard place to be, and all of that is coming together to make your spirituality very foggy. Maybe Jesus is something out there that you really want to, to grab a hold of, but it's just not very clear right now. And maybe like Bartimaeus, who wasn't just blind, you also might feel like you're on the outside looking in. Maybe it's actually the struggle you have spiritually that's making you feel even more isolated. Like I sh maybe, maybe you're telling yourself, I shouldn't feel this way. As you come to church on Sunday and see many people smiling and singing songs. Maybe you feel like you're that one person who struggles spiritually and you're on the outside looking in. Throughout Christian history, there have been a lot of words that Christians have used to describe that. Right here, we could call it the roadside. In the 1500s, a guy by the name of Juan de la Cruz, or John of the Cross, would describe it as a dark night of the soul. It's when everything that used to work right in your life just turns off. You don't hear God anymore, you don't see God, you don't feel him, your relationships suck, church is hard, everything that used to work so beautifully when you first started following God just stopped working. He called that the dark night of the soul. Today, when I talk to people, they, they call it deconstruction. And they're deconstructing some of the layers that have kind of piled themselves on what they're hoping to find is Jesus. Here's how one person puts it. She says, deconstruction is the process that Christians use to examine how our relationship with God has been influenced by all of these things. And she gives examples, traditions, theology, church leadership, societal factors, all of these things that we experience in our modern world. In other words, this isn't deconversion. This isn't a problem people have with Jesus. From my experience, it seems to be a problem people are having finding Jesus because of all of these messy layers that have been put on him. You ever feel like that? And so this isn't deconversion, but a deconstructing, a peeling of layers that can feel painful sometimes, confusing, jarring. In a painful search to find the truth about who Jesus is. It can also get you in a lot of trouble in the church. As you show up and other people are just not on that journey. They're fine. Things are going great. The songs really ring true. The word of God speaks to them. Things are going wonderfully. And maybe... 
throughout that season, one or two of them have said to you, in your dark night of the soul, do not be anxious. Be of great cheer. And I don't know if in your struggle you have ever felt this way. But as people reacted in their fear to your journey, perhaps you felt ostracized, alone, on the roadside. I don't know where you're at in life, although I know a few stories over the years. But maybe wherever you're at in your spirituality and in your relational journey with others, you feel like you can't see very clearly. And maybe as a result, you feel like an outsider. Perhaps you also could say, I feel stuck on the roadside. What we see in the story is that Jesus always seems to find himself by the roadside. to meet people right where they're at. Jesus meets you where you're at, but he doesn't just meet you where you're at. Jesus also calls you to be with him. Jesus meets people in their mess. He meets them where they're at, but he always calls those same people to follow him and to be with him. Look at the rest of the text. When they heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out, Bartimaeus, saying, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him. Go figure. Telling him to be quiet. Stop it, Bart. It's always interesting to me and slightly tragic that there are no Pharisees in this mob that I can see. No Roman empires or centurions. These are like Jesus people. Sometimes the worst shots come from across the bow. And this crowd, you know, and I I resonate a little bit with them too. They're probably so pumped. They're like, dude, I'm like on the inner circle. This is like a crazy concert. And I'm like, there's like a thousand people around Jesus. And maybe there's this one person who like got slightly in on the inside and they're like 20 feet of the way, uh, 20 feet away. And they're like trying to edge their way in. And Bartimaeus ruins everything. He starts screaming, and the crowd jostles around a little bit, and this one guy is like, Bartimaeus, shut up! I get it. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Verse 49, and Jesus stopped. Oh, that Greek word for stopped is really interesting. It means uh, stopped. <laughs> the actual phrase is, has a really prolonged sense to that stoppage. There's, there's a sense in which uh, he just stopped dead in his tracks. If I, could, if I could loosely translate it, the author might have said he, he stopped and he stood still. Jesus stood still. You have to understand, when we read stuff like this, we, we gotta let go of the analytical reading. This isn't a seminary class. This isn't a Bible study. This isn't even home group questions on Wednesday night. 
I want you to put your heart and imagination into the scene and imagine what it would have been like to be Bartimaeus right now. Is Jesus, the most popular person in the world at the, at the moment, who is surrounded inaccessibly by hundreds, maybe even more, thousands of people who's going from place to place preaching incredible charismatic sermons and healing the poor and healing the sick and casting out demons who the religious establishment is shaking in their boots over. This is an incredible person. But no one like you will ever be able to get close enough to a person like him because you're blind, you're poor, you're isolated, you're ostracized, and you're far away. And in that one window of time, he comes by you. He walks by your roadside, whatever that is. And it's your chance. You scream out, hey, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Nobody answers. And the people who are supposed to have your back are like, stop it. He cries out again a second time, son of David, have mercy on me. And in the middle of this mob with noise and movement and a deadline, and you could imagine people asking him stuff like, can you heal my uncle? And uh, can you teach me a fun parable? And what do you think about vaccines? And well, what do you think about that? And just everyone just overwhelming Jesus in this fury of noise, and he's walking along, and the, all of a sudden, he stops and stands still. The Bartimaeuses of the roadside are able to cause Jesus of heaven to stand still. And his feet stopped, but his heart moved. Notice that his heart didn't move because of the crowds. He wasn't moved by the madness of crowds, but by the desperation of a man who couldn't, couldn't even see him. I think it's also interesting there's, that uh, he had to ask twice. <laughs> I don't, and I don't know. Like, I don't know if Jesus didn't hear him the first time, or maybe he did hear him the first time, or maybe he missed it, mistook it for something else. We don't see any of that stuff in the text. I don't know what happened. All I know is he had to say it again. What if he stopped at the first one? What if Bartimaeus tried once and it didn't work and he was all, well, I guess that was my chance. We see pictures of that all throughout the scriptures, right? In Daniel, the book of Daniel, it says that Daniel was praying for 21 days. And on the 21st day, three weeks later, an angel comes to him and says... I was dispatched to you the moment you started praying, but I've been a little busy. It's, there's been a lot going on up there, and I came to you just in time. Three weeks later, what if Daniel stopped after day one? What if he gave up after week two? What if he put down his prayers on the 20th day? What if Bartimaeus stopped after the first one? I love that Bartimaeus didn't stop. I love that he wasn't given into the madness of crowds. I love that he gave it one more time. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and stood still and said, call him. 
Never mind the finicky crowds. Just get to Jesus. And we can't escape the irony of this text. That Jesus is surrounded by a lot of people with physical eyesight. And the dude who seems to see him the clearest is blind. (laughs) And by seeing him, I don't just mean enough to ask him for healing. I mean, look at what he says. I'm going to read this again. He says, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. You know what that means? You might be thinking, I thought thought Jesus was the son of Joseph. Well, you're right. (laughs) This phrase is loaded with so many connotations. It's reaching back into the Old Testament story of God. Back in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12 through 13, King David was prophesied over by the priest. And in this, it was prophesied over him, saying, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I, God, will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. In other words, God is saying to King David, hey, I'm gonna give you a son and that son is gonna be the king of Israel. But David had a lot of sons after that. He had Solomon, there was a Rehoboam who was not a great guy. There were a lot of people that would rule for different lengths of time. None of them seemed to fulfill that particular line that you will have a son who will establish his throne of my kingdom forever. No one's seen that guy yet. But you will have that guy. You will have that son. You you will be the son of David. So you could imagine the average Jewish household sitting in their home and hearing the first line of a gospel say this. This is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Their jaws must have hit the floor. You know why? Because the entire story of the Old Testament was lurching forward to tell all of us that there was a king who was coming who would rule not only Israel, but the entire world. And when Matthew comes in on the scene and Mark and Luke and John saying, this is the guy, they're saying the long-awaited deliverer is Jesus. He is the fulfillment of Israel's story. And in Mark, this is the first time we see that phrase. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. I love that the guy in this story that sees Jesus the most clear is the blind person. And I love that sometimes, well, I don't know if I love it. It's interesting. Sometimes I find myself singing songs about this. Not even knowing, not even registering what I'm singing about. (laughs) Noel, Noel, born is the king, Israel. How much fanfare we give this and how much we talk about it and how much it's 
deeply embedded in our tradition and we so easily forget Jesus is the king. And Bart, good old Bartimaeus, sees this and knows this. It's as if something clicks in his mind as Jesus comes along the roadside and he says, this ain't just a teacher. This ain't just a rabbi. This is the fulfillment of the story. A story that the apostles would go on later to fill in all the blanks. Here's what some of them said. Paul would say in Colossians that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He would say Jesus contains all the fullness of God. He would say Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his nature. That's why, as John would say, whoever has seen Jesus has seen the Father. Paul would go on to say Jesus is before all things. Jesus created all things. Jesus is preeminent in all things. And Jesus holds all things together by the word of his power. Jesus is how the Father is reconciling to himself all things. Jesus will unite all things in himself, things in heaven and things on earth. Jesus is highly exalted. Jesus is faithful and true. Jesus is wonderful counselor, mighty God, prince of peace, alpha and omega, advocate, deliverer, lion, lamb, lord, savior, servant, king, and friend. Jesus has immeasurably great power towards people. Jesus is seated at God's right hand in the heavenly places. Jesus is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. Ain't nobody like him. Jesus is name above every name that is named. Jesus is the head over the church. He's the good shepherd of the church. He's the great high priest of the church. He's the chief's cornerstone of the church. Jesus is the fullness of him who fills all in all. He fills everything, and yet he also dwells in your heart through faith? <laughs> Jesus lives in unapproachable light, and yet a blind man can approach him. Jesus is the one no one has ever seen or can see, and yet a blind man is about to. In him we are blessed with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. In him we have redemption through his blood. In him we have the forgiveness of our trespasses. In him we have been made alive together. In him we who once were far off have been brought near. In him we are no longer strangers and aliens but are fellow citizens with the saints. We're members of the household of God. He's full of unsearchable riches. He contains all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. The whole Bible testifies about him. Jesus is proof that God loves you. His love surpasses knowledge. Jesus is the COO of God's eternal purpose. He's the CFO of God's riches and glory. And as the one from whom the whole body joined together, held together by every joint which with it is equipped. Jesus is the best person in HR you've ever met in your life. He's filled with affection. He's full of encouragement. He's the author of faith. He's a proclaimer of justice. He's a abundant in comfort. He's a dispenser of righteousness. He's better than life and he's worthy of death. And in the words of a prophet Isaiah and a young gal by the name of Mary, he's Emmanuel, God with us. 
The entire Old Testament foretold this guy. The entire New Testament explains him. The universal church worships him. And yet before any of that fanfare, blind Bartimaeus saw enough of him to say this guy is special and worth following. To cry out, Jesus, you are the son of David. Have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped in his tracks, turned towards Bartimaeus, and called him to himself. What he would do after that, and this is my last point, is that Jesus heals you. And he heals you from the ground up. And we know how this story is going to end. He heals him of his physical blindness. But notice that he heals him of several things. His societal ostracism. <laughs> I don't even know if that's a word. Just made it up right there. Ostracism. He heals him of his loneliness. He heals him of his poverty. He heals him of his brokenness. He heals him of all of the weird stigmas that the crowd put on him. He calls him to himself, gives him a family, heals him of his isolation. There's a lot of healing going on here, but I want you to see where all of this healing first stems from. Dude asks him a question. Jesus asks Bartimaeus a question. Look at Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? I think this has always thrown me off because deep down inside, I always imagine Jesus asking me, or not asking, I don't, I don't imagine Jesus asking me anything. He's God. I imagine him saying, here's what I want you to do for me. <laughs> I imagine him saying, here's what I want you to do with your life. Here's how I want you to put it all together. Here's how I want you to show up for me. And so this is very strange, even after 15 years of pastoring, for me to read a passage like this from the Son of God, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, to ask a lowly person like Bart, what do you desire? This, if that's not crazy enough, this seems to be one of Jesus' favorite questions. He asked it in another gospel. He asked it in this gospel right before this. If you were here last week, he asked it to James and John. When James and John came up to him and they were like, Jesus, we want you to do something for us. And he says to James and John, what do you want me to do for you? Put us at your right and left hand when you're in power. And he doesn't give them exactly what they want. He gives them half of what they want. He says, you will be baptized in my baptism. That means you'll suffer and die. But as far as who gets to sit next to me in the kingdom, I can't give that to you. <laughs> but notice, even in that, he completely transforms James and John. He asks these questions that probe the human heart and bring out the depths. And then he interacts with that and gives people the truest desire of their heart. James, who really messed up right there, would go on to write his own book. And in that book, he would say in chapter four, verse three, sometimes when you pray, you don't get what you want because sometimes you ask with wrong motives. <laughs> I wonder if he was thinking of himself back then. And yet his life has changed. Jesus runs into Bartimaeus, asks him, what do you want me to do for you? And he says, I want you to recover my sight. 
Verse 51, the blind man said, Rabbi. That particular word that he uses for rabbi is not just rabbi or teacher, it's rabboni. It is one of the strongest ways you can emphasize what he's about to say right here. It's, it's akin to saying, master, master, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately, there's Mark's favorite word, uses it over 50 times in, in the gospel of Mark. One, because the Gospel of Mark is a really rapid-paced book, but also anytime he says immediately, you should probably pay attention to the words coming right after that because he's trying to get your attention there. And what's after immediately? He recovered his sight and followed him on the way, which I think is so precious. Jesus says to this guy, you're free. Go your way. And Bartimaeus chooses to go the way of Jesus. If I could summarize this, what the text is telling us today is that Jesus meets you where you're at. Are you by the roadside today? He's there with you. Are you in a particularly special place and you're enjoying your life and God is really close? He's there too. Jesus meets you where you're at, but Jesus also calls you to follow him and go with him. And lastly, Jesus heals you from the ground up. Jesus didn't just heal the guy's eyes. He made him whole. And Jesus is still doing that today. Jesus is, 2,000 years later, still meeting you and calling you right here on your roadside, in your church building, in your home, in your living room, in your car on the way to work, wherever it is. But perhaps today you have some obstacles I don't know what those obstacles are. Maybe you feel blind in a way. You can't see clearly. Maybe Jesus feels inaccessible to you. Maybe you are going through a lot of shame. Maybe it's been well-meaning, well-intentioned Christian people who've hurt you. Maybe it's been layers that you're still trying to peel apart in order to find Jesus And I want to remind you that the gospel is the good news. It's the good news that God has come near to you in Jesus Christ. That God's kingdom has come near to you in Jesus Christ. So even if you feel like you are blind and stuck on a roadside... The good news is that God is approaching you and his son, Jesus Christ, and he will never stop doing that. What I want to do for the remainder of our time here is we'll sing a couple songs. And Joseph, if you want to prepare us for that, brother. I want us to remember the gospel together. That Jesus is near, even when you don't feel it. And even when you can't see it, like Bart. And I want to do this through worship and song, through prayer. But I also want to do it through communion. And we're going to do communion a little bit different today. We normally, at Reality, do communion very personally. You know, we turn the lights down, we have the songs going, you can come forward, you grab your little cup and your wafer, and you worship God by yourself, and 
for many years, that's always been a very powerful thing. But today, I want to do this a little bit more corporately. Uh, Stephen and I want to serve you the bread and the cup. Uh, we'll just be standing right there behind this very modern desk over here. Just like the one Jesus would have used. He has great style. Here's why, I wanna, here's why we want to do this. I know some of you are so tired and weak right now. And for whatever this is worth, viscerally, visually, I wa we want to remove even the feeling that you must do something to access God. Even as small as picking up the bread by yourself. As you pick up the bread and the cup, we want to proclaim the gospel over you. This is his body. This is his blood. To remove even the sense that you must, as you're taking communion to some dark corner, figure out the right words to pray. Because this is the gospel. You have needed to do nothing for the goodness of God to come near to you in his son, Jesus Christ. And right before he left, he reminded his disciples like a good friend, let's have a meal, and I want you to remember this through the bread and the cup. And so Stephen and I will be right over there and just receive as my last act as your lead pastor and as Stephen's first act as his lead pastor, we want to proclaim the gospel over our friends. I know what you're thinking, and I have gloves on and stuff. Those have been hygienically placed. And there's a few of you outside in the parking lot. After we're done here, we're coming out there. We want to serve you there too, so it might be a few minutes. But if you could wait, we might even run out of songs, but we're going to get out there. And let's just, let's just bring this to a place of worship and respond to the goodness of God who loves you no matter where you're at. Amen.